Cal Newport and his book, So Good He Can't So Good You Can't They Can't Ignore You. That's what the book is. So good they can't ignore you. And he talked about career capital and then I with it and had my own little bit of definition of it. It's like the way I consider it is like any asset that helps you like have a valuable or purposeful career or successful career, right? But anytime when people tell you, you like, hey, I'm having a problem with my career, and they always say, like, yo, go invest in your career. I'm like, what does that even mean? What does investing in your career mean? So I want to start off, let's talk about this app that you're building. This is like the chronic builder person right here. I ask you what it is <laughs> that is on your the top of your mind. And you're like, oh, I'm learning this new language. I'm building this app. Like this is just classic builder problems here. So tell me about what you're building and I want to hear all about it. Yeah, I'm building a mobile app right now. It's built on top of Flutter. It's trying to solve like a couple of things. One is I've been wanting to learn Flutter and build an app, right? But at the same time, I've had this personal problem that I've been going through when your wife asks, like, hey, where do you want to eat at? And we can't decide, right? And you just want to like, okay, I wish there was just a dartboard we can throw a freaking dart on and it'll choose for us. And I was like, you know what? Maybe we can just make an app for that, right? A handy little reference card or a handy little app that has like a deck of cards that shows either restaurants or whatever, and it'll just choose for you. And that kind of evolved to other use cases, like a reference card, like for anything like either life-saving or if you're car broke down and you're like in the middle of nowhere and trying to remember like how do I jump a car and I can't access can't call anybody <laughs> I just need to find out what that is right digitizing to reference decks and making it easier and more mobile for you so you don't have to bring like a stack of flashcards with you right or a, a stack of reference cards yeah so that's one thing I'm trying to solve right now when I actually have time to to build it I'm halfway through the initial MVP where I'm able to create the deck shuffle the cards and also pull a random card. Hopefully I can get it out published by the end of the year, um, but we'll see. <laughs> Are you thinking about having it like be able to pull in data from the web to create the own cards or will it be like all fully customizable? I'm, I'm sure maybe both. Yeah. So uh, a couple of use cases that I've had is like one, a uh, user can create their own cards, right? Because you have your own, your own use case you want to use it for. Um, I want to give like a baseline of maybe 10, 20 car, uh, card decks is what I'm calling them to have something there because usually nobody uses it if they, there's no content to, to begin with. But at the same time, like in the future, I do want it to even evolve to where people can share their own card decks to other people. But at the same time, even making it as a monetizable item, having a marketplace. If you as an influencer or somebody that creates content have like a set of things that you like to share out to people, it's like, hey, this is my it's my go-to things. If you're if you're using this to I don't know, brainstorm or whatever, here's the card deck that I would use or prompts. And you're you as a content creator could uh, sell that or as part of your as part of your offering. So that's what I'm thinking through. But that was more future ones. I'm really worried about more. Okay, the current the first use case because you could easily the the product manager in me really goes to like the okay, what's the vision? But at the same time, like I want a bit, this is to scratch an engineering itch that I want to write some code again. So I've been trying to force myself to just, okay, let's move on what my, what my initial requirements are before I go scope creeping up there. So, yeah. I think that there's also like a, an interesting use case there. One of the things that you had said was you'd like, I think before we even started recording, you were talking about how to jump your car, like with a battery or whatever. And I could see yeah. something 
like that being useful for a household of maybe I'm out on vacation and my wife calls and is having some kind of trouble with her car or like maybe the water heater or some kind of weird object in the house <laughs> that like maybe I'm responsible for. And <laughs> hey, if this happens, go through these steps. You could yeah. add some photos and stuff like that. That would be interesting. I, I don't know if that's like quite the direction, but I, I think that there's definitely a use there somewhere. It is actually. So that's a com one of the use cases actually is actually not just having a text-based card, but actually a video card, right? If it's like a, so one of the things that I'm thinking through is like recently we've had a lot of video content that's been short form. So being able to save those as links or even directly publishing to the app with those kind of short videos to not just have it on word text, but also oh. this is to your use case, right? That you're calling out, like if you're going on a vacation or you're going somewhere else and somebody else is maintaining your house. Like this is how you actually operate the water heater if it breaks. This is your initial first steps to to either debug it or try to restart. So those kind of things as reference reference cards. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But yeah. That is, it's really interesting. And you said a couple of things there that I want to pull on like the thread with is you, one, you started with a problem. And I think that there are the audience of this, like I have a lot of entrepreneurs on and so <laughs> There are a lot of people that have ideas about stuff, but sometimes that doesn't necessarily correlate to a problem. So I want to hear you talk about maybe problem selection a little bit. And then the other thing that you said that I thought was interesting was, oh, I wanted to learn this. And so yeah. I think that's also like a, a non-intuitive thing of, hey, rather than go and try and you're not probably reading the white papers on Flutter to do yeah. it, or maybe you're using those as a reference point, but it's like, hey, I'm going to actually practice and build something with this to learn it. Yeah, for sure. So I'll start with the problem selection. So problem selection for me, I get asked this a lot, actually, for not just entrepreneurs, but also some of my mentees that are just trying to bring in tech. I want to build a project or something. I was like, okay, cool. How, what project should I build? Like, it depends on what you're trying to accomplish with that project or with that problem or with that project that you're building out. So choosing the problem. To me, it's always, I want to solve a problem that I personally have initially, right? I'm sure there's 7 billion people in the world that should somebody have, somebody else should have this common problem. But even if the product launches and it fails, I know I solved my own problem, right? I know I'll have one specific user. Anytime I build something like this on a small scale, it's not like on a big corporate company, like I want to solve something for me, right? As an initial user, because it easily helps you validate a couple of things. So if you build something out that solves a problem that you have, you already can tell, you can quickly test if it solves your problem, right? You can, if, if you have the solution, like the initial scrappy solution that you have, does it fix my, the, the, the problem that I stated before? And then the next thing there is if you really want to productize something, you start realizing, okay, this is a common, that's where it came from, right? The problem that I was trying to fix uh, initially was I, me and my wife wish we have this thing that can just pick where the heck we're going to eat at so we don't waste like 30 minutes arguing on where we're going. And that kind of evolves like, okay, what other use cases would this be useful for? What industries does this apply to? Is it something that you can have generalized or not? And when I started looking to it, like, okay, yeah, there's actually a use case for this. And then that's where, the, okay, how would I market it? How would I sell it? Who would I sell this to? Is it going to be consumers or is it going to be the, is it going to be B2B and all that stuff came in? But I guess going back to the initial question, like how do I choose problems? I choose ones that solve a specific problem that I, just because I have the domain knowledge on it already. Um, I know the pain points because that's the biggest piece, right? You want to know what the pain points are that you're solving for. Because an idea sometimes is just a good idea, but there's no, there's no actual problem. Like you found what common, uh, a common thing that people run into is like, do you have a, 
you start with a solution without a problem, and now you're trying to look for a problem to solve with your solution, right? That's like a common common issue. Like I know I'm guilty of sometimes, like when when I'm building something out. The second piece of it was okay. Why am I this? The second piece of it was also the Flutter thing. Like and that's the problem that I've been trying to solve. Like I want to solve, <laughs> I want to learn Flutter, and I want to at least in my experience, the way I learn, it's I'm I have to build something in order to learn it, right? I have to do. I can't just look at reference docs because. It's great, quick start docs and hello world and all that stuff, but also building something that you have a specific, that coincides in a problem you're trying to solve, to me, resonates a lot faster because I'm like, okay, how would I solve this in this specific use case? So I was trying to kill two birds with one stone is what I was trying to do, at least in this specific item, um, which is useful for for people that are transitioning to tech or pre-transitioning, but that's a separate use case. But if, you, if you're, I guess, trying to build a problem or you're trying to, solve a problem and you're trying to identify which one it is, I would say find the ones that you have industry knowledge are. Or if you have a if you're somebody that's let's just say you're a software engineer, so you have the skills to build, you need to partner with somebody that if you're for example, if you have background in software engineering at Microsoft or at a big tech site or a big tech company, you can apply those to a different domain. But you need to figure out a partner. Like you need to have somebody to either note the domain. So either a co-founder, let's just say you're a software engineer at a big tech company and you want to solve a problem within the climate space, right? Either one, you have to upskill yourself to figure out what the problem problem sets are or the problem domains in, in the climate space, or you co-found, you find a co-founder that has that domain knowledge on that area and you bring the tech skills, right? Or you bring the skills for it. So that way you can do it both ways. So hopefully, hopefully that helps in how I think through the process of it, but happy to answer any question there. Where do you think the the pricing conversation comes in? Because that's another thing that I think people are eager to, one, mishmash the, the solution to a problem that maybe it doesn't fit, but then also maybe an obsessive, and maybe I'm talking my own book here about also having this problem of worrying about what the monetization model is. Like, when do you think about when to to start thinking about that and then how does that play into this specific problem that you're trying to tackle yeah so in this specific use case the, the card i call that the app is called card crate okay so that's the name of the app <laughs> so for card crate for example the monetization piece actually came in a little bit late i wouldn't say late but was an after effect if i already had the the problem uh statement one because like you it wasn't intentionally trying to be as like i said it wasn't an intentional thing to to make money was just solving a problem that I have and I'm sure other people have. But obviously understanding like different models and the industry that it is that 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 solution is for. Right now, like it's a consumer product. It would be a consumer product, right? Unless I shift it to a B2B. My model would be either selling it as a premium or a subscription. Right. Mm-hmm. A lot of a lot of a lot of things that I understand that things. A lot of applications or companies now really are going to a subscription model. Right, just because like you have that recurring revenue uh, over time, right? And a lot of uh, companies, even for the cloud, are shifting to large that. I would say that you can, you can. There's some forget the book name. I'll send it to you afterwards. But there's like a book for business models because there's common business models there. You just gotta figure out what fits for the app that you're building out. So for me, it's just more of a subscription one. And again, like I wouldn't build that in right out right away because the thing is, well. And the way I'm approaching it is in my strategy is like, I would actually focus more first on the getting traction 
on it if that's my goal. I have the opportunity to look at like the, the cost of like, how much would it cost to run this? And I was making, going through that exercise of like, okay, is it going to cost me like a thousand, a hundred thousand? Because that's when you really start thinking about, okay, I need to monetize really quick if I'm a small business and I'm not a startup because then I had to actually pay for the cost of these servers, right? Or these, these web servers that I'm spinning up, right? So that's why I'm trying to figure out like what the cost could be at, at a minimal to where the feature that I'm building up for the first MVP is actually all local. So I'm not going to be paying extra for a web server to maintain that and all that stuff just so I don't have to think about the monetization piece. And I focus on the, I focus first on the validation of the, make sure there's a problem solution fit and then try to look for that product market fit. And then you should have that, you should have an initial plan of what the monetization plan is. I should be clear, you should have a plan, <laughs> right? If this is something that you want to build as a business, you should have a monetization plan or an exit plan. If your goal is just to, Get as much users as you can and then sell to somebody else. And that's your exit strategy. That's how you make money. That's fine too. There's different companies that do that, specialize on that. But if your goal is to like, hey, I'm actually going to remain as a small company and profit like my first hundred users, then great. That's a different strategy too. So I guess it just depends on what your intention is. To like for, for mine specifically, I'm not, it's not going to be like my main um, income source, right? It's just more for another problem that I was trying to solve for. Listening to you talk, it's clear that you've got a lot of reps in on this and are like <laughs> clear on the process. And I, I appreciate and respect that because it's not a lot of that stuff is not intuitive. It's not, especially if you're like maybe just learning to code or maybe have an interest in building a side project. That's a lot of the the things that your mind would instantly jump to are not what you should actually be doing. So. I know that you have been a product manager at Microsoft and then now are at Salesforce. It might be good. I'd love to just hear, a, give me like a couple minutes feel about you actually getting here because I think that your background is particularly interesting. I was just surprised and had a little bit of sticker shock looking at hey, like the course of your career and then also seeing that you didn't have this big fancy degree and like still landing these very kind of jobs that would be very covetable. And so, yeah, maybe <laughs> give me the, give me the background here. Yeah, sure. Okay. So I was in the army for about half years active duty. I was an infantry guy, so definitely not related to tech at all. I was a knuckle dragger, kicking doors and running around the woods. I got out of active duty in 2014 and I got into a program called Microsoft Software and Systems Academy. It's, at that time, I was, we were actually the second cohort overall, so it was a program that was pretty, fairly new, and it helped service members that were transitioning out uh, learn something, learn how to code and all that stuff. So that was pretty pretty awesome. But then the program, I was able to create a Windows app. It wasn't like a web server or anything like that. It was console applications and all that goodness, but at least it got me to that uh, position. And after the program ended, I was able to secure a job at Expedia. My goal, definitely coming out of the military was, at least at the time, was like, I want to be a software engineer, for sure. And I had a few interviews, and I wasn't, based on the resume that I had, like, coming out, like, like it's funny, like, when I look at the resume, like, yeah, I wouldn't, I'd say, well, get hired with this, right? Like, you don't have a college degree, the, the peer group, right, that you're grad, because I was, I think when I was coming out, I was, like, 21 or 22, and my peers are, like, coming out with a computer science degree and interviewing at these other places, the entire process for software engineering interviews is a lot of prep, actually. Now it's a little bit better to do that because there's a lot more resources. But when I joined, when I was transitioning, there was like 
no no resources to understanding the tech review. So it was hard to prep for it, to be honest. But yeah, I landed my first role at Expedia, even though it wasn't a software engineering role, it was an operations role. And at that time, like my goal was really to transition into software engineering. But at the same time, I also realized that maybe the first step is just breaking into the industry, like the tech industry. I was fortunate enough that the position I was on was, it gave me a really good viewpoint of the entire industry. I shouldn't say that in the entire industry, like what a tech company looks like. So that role was making sure that Expedia site was up and I got to work with different product teams and engineering teams and making sure that their web services are up, right? So I got to look at like how that looks like and also the transition from on-premise data centers to the cloud was also fun, fun to learn because that was a pretty big thing, right? And then about it, I did do, I did that as so the role itself is like doing dashboards, looking at like trends and contacting the right folks if there's an issue and getting if, detecting if the site goes down. Let's call whoever needs to get in here to get it fixed, right? So after that, about a year and a half, I transitioned into my first software engineering role within Expedia, actually. I transitioned within our platform team where we worked on the actual tools that I used as an analyst. So I had the domain knowledge, right? Of like, okay, what things did I use this for? And now going from being a user for it, being like more of an admin slash a developer for those tools. So again, like a common trend of like, okay, I know the domain space, the domain challenges that we have. Now I'm just applying it to different skills. So it's every, being an analyst, I was actually coding there. So that's a pretty fun transition, learned a lot. And then I went to, I think at that time, like I think the tail end of that, I was a software engineer there for a year. At the tail end of it, we had a reorg that kind of made it a little bit trickier for me to stay because like, I was learning, but also working at the same time to where the workload was too much for me. And I had to really take a pause and tell myself, like, you could just take, go to a boot camp and go learn all these things, or you could continue doing this like at p.m. till 10 p.m. at night when you're already brain dead. Right. That was a good call. That I, I, unfortunately, not for that time, at that time. The GI Bill actually got approved for these coding boot camps. I was like, you know what? I'll just, I have the resources for it or have this benefit for it. I'll just go do that. And I talked to a couple of folks that were graduates from the that coding boot camp and I worked with them and they were pretty solid. I was like, I'll take your course too, which is pretty humbling because I went for that three month, three and a half month course. The people that were gutting for my old job, right? Like they, so as soon as I left, they opened up the position and the people were applying to it. And the course <laughs> that I was at, I was like, wait, that's my position. <laughs> Literally my team. So that's pretty funny. But yeah, after that, I got a job at uh, Microsoft as software engineer, focusing on site reliability engineering. Uh, and at that position, I was able to help build data centers and regions for Azure to make sure that we can get those capacity up as soon as possible. I did that for about a year. And then from there, I transitioned from the what caused it was like I was working on a product and project at that time that was like, I worked on for like four months and I relaunched it and it was like, why is nobody using it? <laughs> and I was just like, man, I spent so much hours on these things. Like, why is not nobody? And I was like asking, who, who do I talk to for this? Like, well, why are we doing this? And who made it, who, who, who was like the, what, who chose the strategy and all that stuff. And that's when I was exposed to product management. I worked with product managers before at Expedia, but not as much with it. I was more in, involved within when I was in, in Microsoft. So I was like, okay, cool. So these are, this is the role that kind of decides the, the why we're building something out and what we're building out. And I think that time I realized, okay, it's not just enough to know how to build it, how to build a site, but actually you also need to know the why, the what, 
the where, like the, the who you're building product to. And yeah, that's got me, got me into the product path, if I'm being honest. From there, I transitioned into, I decided to talk to my manager and I'm like, hey, about a year and a half from now, I'm going to, I want to transition into product management. Just so happens that our product manager left our team. So as I was, I signed up for a course for software product management and that, that same month, my, our product management, our product manager left. And the team asked me like, hey, you're interested in product management, right? What a domain already. Like, you just got to look at this, you know, like, sweet, let's do this. So I did that. I jumped in. It was actually, again, an awesome experience because I was working with three principal developers. So you coming in super green and you were previously, you were not peers, actually, you were reporting to some of them and you were, they were your seniors, but now you're like on a similar level field, right? It's the same as like having an officer coming into an O1 to an E7. To where you have this person that's been here for 15 years and you're in office, you're like, oh, I've been, I did this thing for like a year or two or three. And then I'm, well, I'm telling you what to do. <laughs> so, that, so that was an interesting experience. And it was awesome. Did that for about another year. And then I went from the Azure group into Windows, where I really, it was a full on product position that's new space. I still wanted to remain technical. So I went to a technical, more of a technical product. So it's a more of a platform product manager role. So I, from there, I was working on Windows notifications on the developer side. So the, the, our product was SDKs and all that stuff. And basically, if you have a Windows machine, it has this little notification that comes up. Our team was the one that created, that, that provided the, the APIs that developers can use to have those notifications come up. And then in 2022, I transitioned from, from that to Salesforce because I want to get back into more of the cloud space. Because at that time when I was at Windows, I was working on the operating system itself. So I wanted to get more into, hey, I want fast, faster iterations, faster releases and all that stuff. So I got back into the cloud space and landed at MuleSoft. MuleSoft is an integration platform. So the product I own right now is the hosted Mule application solutions. So if you want to have a Mule application deployed to the cloud and you don't want to manage anything else on the on it aside from that. That's one of the products that I own. Yeah, and that's been where I'm at for the past year, couple of months. I think in, in the past 10 years I've had, I've been able to surprisingly transition from like the web server, having web servers, like working all the way down from operating systems, all the way to data centers, building out regions into the clouds. Like when I was in Azure, we actually, I, I was part of the team to help build out like the secret clouds. It's one of the products where we're like, you have to, has really high requirements, like it's air gap basically. So that's pretty fun, fun experience as well. That's like a quick, so I guess, quick summary of where I've been at for the past, past 10 years. Yeah. No, that experience is super wide ranging. And I think it's interesting to go from the engineering jump to a product role, because usually I feel like a lot of the, the engineering folks that I know have no interest in like doing anything related to managing other people or like corroborating on like kind of a larger scale project. What do you think was like the biggest mental shift that you had to make to switch gears from here's the code that I'm writing and what I'm working on and that's all I care about to now looking at, okay, I've got 10 of those people or however many to manage and each of them is working on something different and all making sure everybody communicates now is now your main responsibility in the PM role. So what was the, like the biggest shift there for you personally? Yeah. So that's a great question. I would say though, I don't really directly manage engineers. I have an engineering manager peer that I work with that he manages the, I guess the people aspect of it, but I guess chartering out the, 
what to build and why we build it has been the biggest shift. Because I, as a as an engineer, <laughs> it's always, oh man, I'm going to create this function, all that stuff. I, I solutionize pretty quick. If there's a problem that, that somebody gives me, I can go, okay, this is how we solve it. This is how we do this. And then that, going to solution mode. The biggest shift I had to do is actually taking that off and actually asking, is that the problem that we should be solving? Is that the problem this team should be solving? Are we the right team for this? You know, and that's one of the biggest shifts because like you could, if somebody presents me a problem, you can, and I think even in the military as a whole, right? Like it, for us, it's always been like, hey, here's a problem, figure it out. And you figure it out and you solve it right away instead of asking, is it the problem that we really should be solving? Does this align to like the business? Will us doing this um, move the needle, right? So that's probably one of the biggest shifts I had to do is stop focusing on solutionizing and really focus on the problem because that's what is a product manager you're getting paid for, right? Solving the right problems for that has the has the business impact and also customer impact. So yeah, that's that's and it's to be honest, it was pretty hard at first because oftentimes a lot of people say that you as a software engineer have a lot more have that engineering background, right? Like a technical background. So you would know already all these things. Like it's helpful, but you but the the, the flip side of it that I tell folks is, is that you think too much in the box sometimes and you sometimes fail to challenge why we should be doing something. I could just, and earlier in my career as a product manager, I would, I would actually cut like some specific solutions right away just because I'm like, yeah, this, now nah, this won't work. Instead of actually challenging the team of like, why should, what happens if this actually works? What if we actually address this problem that's constraining this other problem so that this solution now works altogether instead of cutting down to like directly saying, no, that's, that won't work. Or just having that conversation. I, I think that's the biggest piece for me. It's funny because when I, like I said, like when I was working with those three principal engineers, they were like, why did you go to the dark side, man? Like, because I just literally got, the month before that, I got promoted as a software engineer. <laughs> as a three, and I'm like, dude, what the heck, man? Like, you're supposed to be, go to me in this side. I was like, yeah, man, I, I don't know. Like, I, I wanted to do this product thing and, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there is so much like, I don't want to say animosity there, <laughs> but like engineering and product, like sometimes they, you, they work closely together. And so naturally they're going to butt heads on a lot of stuff. I have some questions on like the relationship between engineering and product, but you said something that you were talking about having to think maybe in the mind of the the customer and then also the business more so rather yeah. than just focusing on, I like that word, solutionizing, you're saying, what are the types of qualifiers that you are then thinking about in relation to your product about like, how do you, I guess, what are the qualifiers and then how do you look at getting rid of certain things of, and like determining what actually is important that you guys are bringing? And, and then I guess connecting that to the customer and the business, like you said. So. To me, there's different sources because you, you all obviously get these different these. There's different ways to do it, right? If you start from the top, you can do a top down like business directive. Like, hey, we need to increase revenue by X amount, right? So either you figure out like a new product solution to introduce to do that, or you can also go from a bottoms up approach, right? Like you have if you have existing customers, which is awesome. You can ask, you can directly ask them like, hey, what major pain point did you have on this product? And trust me, they will. Customers usually tell you more about the how your product sucks <laughs> more than how it's solving a problem, but they will actually, and it's super valuable. Those things are, 
are awesome as a goldmine of like ideas to build. And then as you talk to customers and figure out like a common theme, like for example, if a customer is saying, hey, this application or this thing that you guys have on, the, on, on your site doesn't work. And every time I use it, it's either confusing or I have a different configuration that messes everything up. And if you find out that that's a common thing and, and you identify it's a big business problem, it's, it's causing customers to churn out. For example, instead of them being continuously as our customer, they're thinking about leaving us because of this pain point. So that's one filter that I think they're like, okay, if we build this thing, we could retain these customers. But obviously you also got to think about, okay, what's the cost of building that thing? Is it going to be, is it a problem for 10 customers that are out of a thousand customers, right? Will it just solve their problem? And it, will it cost us how much? Is it going to cost us an entire like dev cycle for the next quarter to just solve this one problem? But then you also got to put it in another lens. Of, are those 10 customers the biggest customers that we have? Because sometimes there's solutions where you have to do that. Or there's problems that you have to solve for, for these folks. So that's actually just a background there. I do platform product management. And that's something that I have to think through all the time. If I solve for, I can't just solve for one customer. I have to solve for everybody. Whatever thing that I introduce has big platform impacts that could destabilize everybody else, right? And sometimes you have to make that decision from there. And yeah, so that's from the bottoms of approach that I usually go through. And then right now, I'm actually going through my, my, my planning session for the next year, right? Okay, what's our strategy and all that stuff. So that's really going to like figuring out what the leadership plan is or like what the company's plan is, right? So hey, we're going to grow X amount or are we trying to get more customers? What are we going to prioritize, right? Are we going for efficiency, right? Are we trying to, actually, we're going to, keep the customer base for the same amount, but now we want to be more efficient. So does that mean like we're going to change the, the different kind of infrastructure that we're running behind this? Is that optimization that we should focus on? Because you don't have to gain, if your cost is, let's just say $5 million each year, if you can figure out a way to reduce that by a million, by just either writing more efficient code or changing the configurations or like different kind of infrastructure building on top of, that's a million dollars. You don't have to really go for another customer. So that's another strategy. Yeah, and then you, you just make sure that whatever you do is tied to something that moves the needle. Because as, like I said, like you could solve a customer problem as well, but if it doesn't move the needle, like your team is going to be like, you're, you're reporting up to leadership. They're going to be like, why did you do this? I'm like, that's a customer problem. And then you're going to be like, okay, what needle does it move? Because obviously the business has objectives. You also have to prioritize that as well. So it's a balancing act between the two. And sometimes I would either go for, I have to go at it on a business point of view, like this, the, problem too small to solve and it doesn't make sense for us to solve it some it might these customers are gonna be mad right but unfortunately that's not the direction we're going with right especially for example if you have a product that you're end of lifing right so if you're familiar with this it's like everybody's always talking about hey building a product is awesome right but there's times when you actually have to shut down a product right like, it's part of the product life cycle and that time when you realize it made a decision to go hey we're actually gonna stop using this or we're not we're gonna stop investing in this product those existing customers will be pissed. Be like, hey, we paid for this thing. Yeah, we'll give you the security updates and all that stuff, but we're not investing new features on it, right? Like those, some people are not going to be happy with that, but others might be, right? But that sometimes has to be, it just depends on the strategy of the business. So hopefully that helps. <laughs> I feel like I give you a long answer for that one. <laughs> no, it, it's good. How do you think about that balance of the business objectives, and then also filtering customer input. Because everybody, especially if you're working on a big project, if you've got, you know, thousands and thousands of customers, 
each of them that does respond to you in terms of, hey, what's the pain points or whatever, they've all got very different ideas about the one, even the problems that they're having. And then two, like how they think, because any angry customer that's going to give you feedback <laughs> is going to tell you, this is exactly what I need. Build this. I want yeah. this feature. So do you have any way that you like a framework or a heuristic on how you funnel those down and actually get to what the, the root problem is? And then also then counterbalance that with, hey, this is actually a company objective and this is actually worth pursuing. Yeah, some tools that I use for that, specifically on those kind of feedbacks, hey, build me this solution or this thing that you're, you're probably going to support this. You're just asking with like, why? I like the five whys approach on it and really trying to get to, because the problem is you're trying to root cause the problem why they're doing that behavior. Like, why are they trying to accomplish that, right? And they're like, I need to do this. I need you guys to support this so I can do this. And they're like, okay, why do you need to, why do you need to do that? I need to do this for my business because of, this other thing. And you start realizing sometimes, even if like after maybe in the third why, maybe you start realizing, I think you're not choosing, I think we're not the product for you. And that's okay too. Like sometimes you got to tell, I've had customers that are trying to use us and I'll tell them like, this seems like a solution that you shouldn't go for a fully managed solution, but rather a custom built solution or a, a solution that you host yourself, right? So you have to, and you can, if you ask them those questions, or at least in, even in the basic why questions, you start realizing like this isn't something that our product, this isn't our charter. Like this is, doesn't sound like a product that, this doesn't sound like what the, our product was designed to solve, right? And then you start educating customers about that. Now, a different thing that you're calling out, let's just say it is a product problem that we have. It is something that we need to solve. It's just, we're just wrapping up points on it, right? Like, okay, now we've encountered 10 customers or 100 customers that's facing this exact issue. For B2B, it's a little bit easier to quantify that because you have support cases and all that stuff. But for a consumer-based product, you, it's more of a, as, as you were saying, like a, I would somewhat of a heuristic. Like to me, if I'm working on a, cons a consumer product and I see one, one complaint, I usually quantify that by 100. Okay, at least 100 people has this issue just because you realize that not every person will respond back good or bad feedback to you. But likelihood of bad feedback is a little bit higher than good. I'm being honest, but you have to think about it. Other people encountered this. Right? You can look at the data if you have the data for it to actually back it up. I usually go with that, but yeah, like, that's, that's one thing. And then you try to figure out it on your roadmap, really. Okay. If that's, sorry, I shouldn't say roadmap on your backlog because you're not even in the roadmap yet. You haven't even accepted it. You're like, okay, this is our, <laughs> this is a common problem, right? Across, we, we identified it's a problem. We know it's a, it's causing, customers a lot of pain now you gotta look at it the lens okay we have we only have let's just say eight sprints right this problem that's going to solve that to solve for x amount of customers will solve will require six sprints and our company expects us to solve or to move the needle by x amount on this objective within this eight sprints does this product does this problem move that right or is it Sometimes you have to also push back to man. Look, we're not going to move the needle this semester or this planning cycle or this eight, this quarter, but we have to solve this because you have to good, have a good justification. I shouldn't say justification, but actually, it's just you have to reason why you have to do this. Like strategy wise, if we don't do this, we don't solve for this, customers will churn out and this will impact the business by X amount. It, it's that's really 
depends on the situation. If I'm being honest, there's a product manager. And it depends on what the situation is. I'm thinking about hypotheticals right now, but that's how I approach it. And ultimately, if you, on your product level, right, like you can't, if there's no alignment from folks and you have to escalate up, you have to escalate up. Because that's how you, if you want to get that problem solved. Because there are, again, I've been in situations where I have to solve a specific problem where it doesn't move any needle that the business wants. But I also know that my customers are having this big pain point and I want to solve it for them. And this kind of depends on like where you are in your cycle. This is a little bit of a selfish question. I recently just started working at a software company and we have, there's some ongoing discussion about this relationship between engineering and product. In your experience, what does that relationship look like in terms of maybe even like the organization structure? And then how do you think is the best way to like optimize that relationship? Because you've got the product people are like maybe closer to the customer and like maybe understand more of the ins and outs and engineering may not get a lot of those nuances. And so like in one hand, you maybe want them to be really close, but sometimes maybe that's not plausible. So I guess just in your, the, the tech experience that you've had, what have you seen to be the most effective? Yeah, I think both sides should know the customer problem. I hope if not, then you as a product manager should be really <laughs> communicating that to your engineers, right? Like they should know what the product is, what pain points it's facing. But at the same time, if you want to build relationships with your engineering managers, I would say that the, my experience, like you have to balance those two things out, right? Because both have different pain points, if I'm being honest. So as Obviously, you talk to your customers, they give you feedback, like all this stuff, like want to build, right, on product enhancements. But your engineers also have things that, that they want to solve for, right? There's some instances where maybe you're not on call because you're a product manager, but these guys are probably getting woken up like every other day because there's this one issue that basically tech debt, right? I'm not sure if you're familiar with tech debt, but it's like basically the things that you said you'll fix later in order to ship this product or whatever thing, but that later never comes in. They feel that pain. Sometimes you have to, I shouldn't say sometimes, but you actually have to make time for fixing those things. You can't just keep on shipping things and you're going to bring it out, man. The demoralize is just there if you do that. But you also have to balance out the prioritization based on business needs, customer needs. So building, I think, I've had, when I work with a lot of my engineering managers, I empathize with them on it. Hey, I understand where this is coming from. And we try to go at it as an objective, like acknowledge hey, there is a problem there, right? Like this is, if it's protected or whatever, acknowledge it, it is a problem. Okay, let's figure out like what this quantifies to, right? Like, okay, maybe you have a bug that always happens like once that costs an engineer like an hour or two each week, right? What's the cost of that? Let's just say it's, like, you, you pay your engineer $100 an hour, $200 a week, basically, right? Like, and then you're trying to tell them like, hey, we're trying to build this product. And, and, and let's just say on this bug, it'll take us, again, two sprints worth of work just to fix that one bug. But at the same time, you have to tell them like, we have this product product feature that we want to launch out, but it's going to bring, let's just say, $100,000 in the span of X amount of years, right? If we don't ship this, yeah, that's where you do the trade-off, right? Like, this is the monetary value. This is the cost, right, of, of fixing this bug compared to this feature, right? And to me, that's how I tackle those things. A different 
I guess that's more on the prioritization piece because that's usually where a lot of the pain points come in between product and engineering. In my point of view, it's always like we have this engineering team be like, hey, we have this pain point that we you you don't have to deal with. He's your product manager, right? Like we have, but we this is such a pain. Like it could be like deployment wise for all we know, right? Something that they have to optimize for, and you just got to talk to them about it. The other piece is really building a good relationship with your engineering manager, and that takes time. In the military, like I said, like you have your officers coming in, and you have to establish rapport, build trust with your, with your, with your enlisted counterparts. My you're the product manager, which is a lot tricky in the civilian side actually, because like the PM in the military, at the end of the day your officer, everybody reports to your officer, <laughs> right? Or at the platoon level, like they. You have direct authority towards them. On the project manager side, you have the same responsibility, but no direct authority. So you're just like, they can do whatever the heck they want. It sucks. I would say it sucks in some situation, but that's really where the challenge is really, okay, I have to establish rapport and influence within my engineering, engineering team. And yeah, it's just building trust with them. It takes time sometimes and really listening in and figuring out like a good solution. And that's more of the relationship between the two. And if you don't have a good alignment with your engineering manager and product manager, you will always be butting heads. So I know, the tactics I've done for it has been if do what you want, not do what you want. <laughs> do what you say you're going to do. If you're going to tell them like, hey, we're going to do this. I'm going to write this product requirement doc and make it easy. Go deliver it. Right? If you're going to review something that they were supposed to, like a doc that they had, go review it. If they they help, if it would, if you... If they think that you don't get any visibility on what they're saying, go to understand them. You know, what is it so you can understand their pain, right? So you can have the perspective of where they're coming from because that's really where you want to be. You just want to be aligned to, okay, engineering, because you want them to also see what the product vision is or the product point of view is. So engineer, so you bring that to them, but you also have to take the time to look at the engineering point of view and where they're coming from because that's also pretty important. Like, really important. Do you think that getting into product management roles like you've been in is a good place for vets is that something that you like you made the joke when we initially talked about talked about getting on the the phone and having a conversation you're like my options as like former infantry were like being a cop or a janitor like on paper like you do like the the (laughs) matching or whatever and that's like what it recommends what do you think stands out about the product manager role that like maybe you could draw some lines to like from your time in the military? Yeah, I would say product veterans have trans a lot of transferable skills into product management, uh, especially if you're coming in from the from the commission side. Reason being is you do a lot of the commander's intent, which is the definition of the why, right? Why you're doing a mission and all that stuff. But aside from that, as a core thing, like a lot of vets are have the reps of dealing with ambiguity. Okay, we have this thing we have to do. We don't know if it's going to uh, you know, blow up or whatever, but you have that thing that you're able to, that you're able to, that you had a lot of reps in, in the military. So you're fine with ambiguity because a lot of times in the product managers, right, especially in junior product managers, you get into a big analysis paralysis of I don't know what to do. And you, and even though if you have a hunch, 80%, I understand like this, we should do this. Some people won't pull the trigger on that. They will just be like, I need to have 100% certainty. And I think a lot of vets just come in with a mentality like, I know not everything's 100%. Like you can have a plan and it won't work coming in. And you just drill it over time. So that thing about ambiguity is super critical for vets. 
the other one is communication. Although I say like you're, one of your main core competencies, figuring out what to build and why you're building it. The other thing is actually communication and collaboration. And you do that heavily within the space of within the military. Like you all, you're pretty good at commuting up and down to your, to your, to your peers or whoever's in your chain of command. And this is what I'm doing and all that stuff. And it's been super useful to me, at least in the product management space to do that. Cause then you can ask for, for if you're locked on a problem, people know. And if you understand what everybody else is doing. So that's, that, that's, if you're an NCO, even better. Cause then you can actually, the, the shift from doing the core task, right? Like, hey, we need to go into this position and fire from this position. You go from a point of view of, okay, this is the perspective I need to look at. This is how I use these different resources, right? So that being you being able to look at a more, I guess, a more strategic sense is another one to help out. Although I would say a lot of military vets, like just out of the military, would probably fit more on a project management position compared to product management position, just because we've been doing a lot of execution heavily. So you might be, I think if you actually transition out, in my point of view, you should go for a TPM position or a PM position, get into the execution side of the house and then shift from that to product management. Because then you can go from, I don't want these to get you done, the timelines to shifting to the strategy role. But that's, you can also just go join product management right out of the gate. Because like I said, like you, you have the, the tools for it or the, the skills for it. It's just that landing the first role is probably the hardest part within product management. You made a couple interesting comments. And when you talk about your career, I find it really interesting that it seems like you have a master plan already. You're like, and, <laughs> and that may not be true, but the way that you talk about, oh, this is where I was trying to go. And then you like, you start with that end in mind. And then you are like working back logically in terms of, Hey, this is how I might get there. How do you think that vets ought to be thinking about that conversation, whether or not that they get into product management or not, how do they align themselves from a career perspective? Because like you said, I think that the first job is the hardest and yep. I've had several people, first person that comes to mind is Troy Peterson, who, mm -hmm. uh, you know, yeah. he, when we talked, he was like, I landed my first job at Facebook and the rest of it was just cake because you have some validation in the market. Yeah. And like you at the beginning, when you're just getting out, like a company has to take a risk on you because yep. you just, maybe the soft skills are there, like you said, but a lot of maybe the certs or like the actual proven industry experience is just lacking. Yeah. Yeah. The way I've told people about this as well, like to your point, like I always backwards plan whatever it is that I'm trying to achieve. So when I was trying to transition into my first role as software engineering, I was really trying to go for that software engineering role, but obviously that didn't work out for me because either one, I don't, I like the skills, accreditate, or I guess the, I, I don't have a degree at that time. It was so like degrees are required and all that goodness. And I realized that's the requirement to get there. Like I need to be good at data searching algorithm. I need to know X amount of languages. I need to know C sharp or Java or whatever it is that the company's looking for. So when I realized that, that's when I started working. So as soon as I landed my first role as an, an operations guy, like the first thing I did was set that intention to my manager. Like, hey, I, you usually want to establish rapport, obviously in trust, make sure you deliver on your current role. And then. From there, like I built my relationships within uh, the company 
so I can make that map and like how can I transition. But at the same time, like I would build on those skills. If I was missing something like, okay, it looks like the software engineering position I was targeting needed this, you know, and they have it on your job listings, right? You don't have, it's not, it's not opaque. You can see, okay, the requirements of, okay, this is the language or the framework that they're looking for. And you just have to learn it, right? But I guess going back even before ending the first role, I usually say if you have an idea of what you want to do, if you're a vet and you're like me, I was an infantry guy and I was like, okay, I want to either go to the career path where I have established uh, existing skills, right? Like security and all that stuff. You can go that. You have those skills. It's a little bit, but the path is a, the path is a lot shorter for you. But if you decide to like, you know what? I don't want to do a job anymore. I want to do so tech, for example. Then you look at, you need to narrow down the role that you want to target. Because even on that industry, there's so many roles. Like when people ask me about tech, I, like, they always think it's just software engineering. Like it's not. It's the same as the military. Everybody's an infantry guy. Everybody has to do different jobs. So you have to figure narrow, narrow down that role and talk to somebody that's on that role to see if that actually, one, right, resonates with what you're looking for. Because then you can actually quickly validate if that's something that you actually want to do. Ask them what's your day-to-day -day like. Fortunately for veterans, there's different programs that you can do that for. You can go through Veterati, right? You can go through, I think, AGP and other companies right, too, that has mentorship to talk to them, talk to people that are on the role that you want to get to and ask them like, hey, is this something, what do you do and all that stuff and see if it resonates with you. Because even before you invest on, here's the thing, when people talk to me about tech, I ask them like, hey, do, so you want to be a software engineer? Okay, so what have you done, <laughs> right, to, to do software engineering and did you like it? Because I don't want to tell you like, hey, you should go to this coding boot because people look at my resume and be like, oh, you went to a coding boot capture. I go there. That's a $20,000 investment that you could be taking out of your GI bill. Like I want you to be intentional as you, there's free resources out there. Start with that first and then go to the ones that it pay, that you have to pay for. Now, just figure out like, I, I guess the, 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 the way I, the framework I tell people, okay, figure out your, why you're transitioning, why you're you trying to get that job. Two, figure out the role that you're that, that you want to land on three is figure out the way to bridge the skill gap because that they will tell you like okay this is what either you find that on job postings or the mentors that you you talk to figure out the path to theirs is there an apprenticeship program available for it is there do i just need to go back to college is there a way i can just teach myself to do this is there a program a nonprofit program that that does this right like for example npower is a company that or a nonprofit that specifically helps people from non-traditional backgrounds in the tech. So figure out the, what path you want to use to bridge the skill and experience gap. And then after that, you go and network, find a mentor. Right? If you can, if you, it's something that you can sustain long-term. But again, like you, you should be utilizing Betterati as much as you can for that. And then lastly, build your brand. Build your personal brand online. It's like everything now has been, nobody will hire you if they don't know you. <laughs> There's everyone, so many people, it make it, it, it's so much easier now to apply for jobs, like hit the apply button, but it's a lot, it's so much easier that so many people apply to it. Now it's the problem shifts to how can I differentiate myself from everybody else? And that's something that, you know, that you have to tell the story, which is actually a good point that you, you brought up earlier. It's like you have these companies that are, are trying to, you, that you're trying to convince or make the case of like, you should invest in me. Because me coming out of the military, I only have X amount of skills and all that stuff. Raw talent. So you're trying to make a case or provide evidence that you should invest on your, that this company should invest in your, in, in you, right? 
So I tell a lot of folks, I guess, at least in the tech industry, like we tell them like, even if you're just learning, go post something about it, right? Because what you're doing is you're previewing to potential employers. You're really interested. Like you're doing this on your free time. You're posting about, hey, this is how I learned about web servers, or this is what I learned about serverless functions, right? And just putting that on LinkedIn. Because again, one, it shows you what, what you learned and you have some context of it and it shows interest. And three, you know, nobody really posts on LinkedIn or other channels. You can, you can be doing YouTube or Twitter, right? Or whatever other, or TikTok, right? Some recruiters hang out there. But most, of, most recruiters hang out on LinkedIn. <laughs> so I would just go there because that's how, the, that's where your customers are. That, they're your customers, right? And you're trying to show them that you should get, that you as a product, right? Should be bought by them. So that, that's what I tell them. And that's something that I've been doing. So yeah, it's a different problem. If it's, if you're in, in, in after you join the company, it's a different, it's a different strategy from there or a slightly different strategy. So. I think that you have done a phenomenal job of practicing what you preach and I'm going to call it like a different type of building in public. Like normally that's referred to in a context of like maybe building a product, but when you are searching for a job, you have the opportunity to have a resume that isn't a piece of paper constantly working for you on your social media, a personal website, your YouTube channel, whatever it is, where people can find and discover you that gives them more insight into who you are. That is beyond the tangible. This is the certification that I have. And it's actually higher signal than what your actual resume says. Like they understand you better. And I think that sort of transparency is really underrated when it comes to looking for a job. A lot of people think that they, you know, maybe I'll look stupid by not or by showing that I don't know anything about this, but that's a good reason to do it. Because if you are willing to do that and guarantee at some point in the military, we've looked stupid for something like looking <laughs> stupid to somebody you don't know. And it's only upside that you're able to capture from being public about your, what you're learning, your job search and what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah. A good example of this actually. So I had one mentee, he graduated from a program of like, again, one of those nonprofit programs that targets like people that are from a non-traditional background coming into tech. Like I told him like, Hey man, just post, post. If you can't, if you're hardcore, do it every day. Like I tried doing that for a month at, at back in uh, February. Try doing that. It's like a, it's a lot of work. I have this full time job thing. If you can do it, great. Like this guy consistently did it for over like 50, 60, he's even, he's even doing it now, actually. It's like 90 days in. He actually had calls. Like the, the main goal of that is, if you think about it, is just being top of mind of people, getting interest. If you consistently just show up and do it, you will get some calls. He, he was able to get some calls from big tech companies too. And I was, I was telling him, like, hey, unfortunately, some, some of the roles didn't work out for him. But that's the biggest difference there. So he actually got a call back and a hiring manager call. And an, actually, one of them actually became an on -stop. So that's a different problem that it solves. Because now you, have, now you have awareness. People have awareness of you. So it's no longer a question of like, who are you. You already have some, some bag of like, some trails that they can look at. Like, hey, this is stuff that I'm learning, right? what I've been doing. To where now your focus kind of shifts from, I need, it's no longer a discovery problem. It's more of like, how can I? knock off the on-site because again this is more for the tech industry like on-site interviews are notorious still prepping for like data structures and algorithms if you're going for a software engineer interview if it's a product manager interview it's like a strategy slash 
product case interview and you have to prep for that. And that's a different, that's a different prep that you have to go for. But it's a different problem now that you're solving. So you have, you at least solved the discovery side of, like, hey, people don't know me. Now they do. And now they're giving me at least a chance. Like you're giving yourself a chance to be hireable. So. Yeah, no, exactly. And I don't think that a lot of people are aware that's actually a step in the process. If we talk about what going from, oh, I think that I need a job to actually being hired. That's something I feel like a lot of vets like start at like step B, which is the, you got to have a way in the door. And that becomes even more important, the lack of skills that you have that directly apply to what it is. Having a, maybe a warm introduction from somebody that also works there. Maybe it's something like what we're talking about posting online. I want to highlight really quickly a lot of the stuff that you've been talking about here. You actually publicly have written about on your personal website. We got to talk about this tech resources guide. Like this, <laughs> ask, dude. Like this is the one of the coolest <laughs> list of resources that I think that I have seen for somebody that's interested in getting into tech. Talk to me about putting this together, maybe the inspiration for it and like what it is and who it's for. Yeah, for sure. Again, it was a it was a problem that I was facing every single time where you're scratching your own itch. So everybody always asks me for the same thing. Like, hey, do you know all these lists of resources? I'm like, I would learn out all these things to people. And I'm like, you know what? I've learned to just out like multiple times already. I should really just, I, it used to be an email template that I used to send out to people. But now I shifted it to, you know what? I'm just going to create this as an air table that people can access. It's really more of answering the question people will ask me like, what resources do you know of that can help me transition? Here you go. And here's the thing, like that solves a problem for me, right? Because I'm like, eliminate that, that question, question eliminates. I still get asked those questions. I tell, at least I can point at the thing. Hey, here's the thing. When people reach out to me, because I, use, I usually have a weekly open office hours or like a coffee chat kind of thing. People can just book time with me. That's the first thing I ask them. Before you even ask this question, have you checked out the thing? Because if you can't, that's an indicator to me. If you're not able to help yourself, with, I already listed out all the resources and you, it's a different thing if you didn't discover it, but even on the booking page, right? Like I li literally linked to that. I can actually tell if you're going to be able to make it or not. That's because, or at least have an idea if you're going to be able to make it or not within the, within the space. Cause it's a tough transition, right? And if you're the skill, the most valuable skill that I would say that if you're a career transitioner is being able to help yourself to find these resources. And if you can't do self-help on, on these kind of things, it's. You need to work on it. I would say there's Google there. Like when people ask me, like, how did you find yourself? Like I Googled it. Like it's, I, I looked at different sites pretty easy. Like I was like, pretty easy, but it's discoverable. It took me like a few hours, but it's doable. But yeah, hopefully it helps folks that are transitioning into tech. Initially on this one, like I, when I wrote it out for vets, but then I was like, this is a common problem that I face when, with some other mentees that are not veterans, right? So I tried to narrow down things because I talked to people that are coming back from, so again, career transitioning is a common problem for different folks different industries, military, people that are coming back from being a caregiver slash they were a mom, right, for a long time, right? Or they were a single dad for a long time and they want to transition and get back to the workforce. That's, there's resources there for them, right? Mm -hmm. so that's I realized that the difference between me and somebody else that's transitioning has just been, I was able to find these things. <laughs> I was able to find these resources and got my way there. So I can help that for somebody else that I tell them, I think you're, you guys are, we're at the same level. Like I, I just 
so happened to increase my luck by betting on all these different programs that I've been in, right? Like that's the MSA program, um, the Code Fellows program, right? And I just leverages, I leveraged it as much as I can so I can get to the roles that I'm in. There's like a certain level of ignorance that's allowed closer and closer to your like exit from something when you like maybe need a direction, you're hungry and you're like, just need somebody to point and say, this is the, but the further away you get from that event there, you, you, like you said, you have to help yourself. You have to be actively doing those things. And it's not easy. It's really freaking hard. And I think that what you just said about being a part of more things, like having more touch points, doing like a thousand cups of coffee, whatever <laughs> kind of networking strategy like you want to do and like being a part of those things. Those are the things that help you. And it's not easy, but that's the point. Like that is what's hard about it. It's not just that somebody will say, oh yeah, I'll give you a job. That never happens and for anybody. And yeah, I love that. I also love that you had put something together to scratch your own itch about the transition thing. I haven't been on Veterati recently just because I've been busy with job transition and being a new dad and stuff. But the I was getting so many so much inbound about like data analyst roles that I like recorded a podcast with somebody and like everybody it's like episode 47, I think. But there was basically somebody that was getting out, wanted to be a data analyst, which is a generic title. But the all of the inbound, I would say go listen to this and then I will have a conversation with you once you have looked at that because, and like I said, you help yourself, saves you some time, allows you to help more people. I love that you put this together. I'm going to include links to your site and like the resource list there, table thing on the show notes because people should definitely check this out. Thank you. And just to add to that too. So aside from saving time for me, actually say it also saves time for the other person, right? Like, because I would say that actually have that call we won't go to that anymore like we actually go to very targeted because that's what you when you reach out to when you reach out to people you usually want to give them like a very targeted problem right because it's a big surface that you're trying to solve for right like, for example the one that is like hey i'm not getting calls right from people then i can actually ask you like what is it that you were trying what you've been doing right from that what's your current strategy and it's more of a targeted rather than hey how can i get into that <laughs> like it's a little bit easier to, to have those conversations, in my opinion. One, one thing, too, is that because everybody's situation is so personalized, you yep. spend a ton of time like extracting these like little details that kind of change the course. And by somebody interacting with a static resource or maybe listening to a conversation or whatever, they will automatically just pull those out themselves, yep. which gives you such a better starting point to jump into actually, okay, you're in this program. Now let's get to the tactical stuff. Yeah, for sure. And sometimes they would come up to me like, hey, I saw this thing, right? Oh, you wrote about this. Here's how I see it on my, on my, like, in my situation. Does that make sense? Or should I? And I was like, dude, there's so much better to that you're aware of that because then I don't have to explain what that thing is. And then you can actually, it, it's more productive for both sides, to be honest. And you can get a lot more value um, out of it. Yeah, Absolutely. There's one last major pillar of subjects that I want to talk with you about. It's this idea of career capital. You, the first conversation that we had, you'd started talking about this and you were blowing my mind with just yeah. like the amount of thought that you put into this. So maybe we should start with what do you think career capital is? Yeah. So I 
obviously did not come up with the, the terminology, but I came on it from Cal Newport and his book, So Good You Can't, So Good You Can't, They Can't Ignore You. That's what the book is. So Good They Can't Ignore You. And he talked about career capital and then I with it and had my own little bit of definition of it. It's like the way I consider it is like any asset that helps you like have a valuable or purposeful career or successful career, right? But anytime when people tell you, you like, hey, I'm having a problem with my career, and they always say, yo, go invest in your career. I'm like, what does that even mean? What does investing in your career even mean? The way I looked at this, I had six different pillars. One is skill. Obviously, those are the most common ones. Like when people have, is it your hard skill, like soft skills, is it communication, all that stuff? That will help you understand like what skill gaps you have. For example, if you're trying to go for a software engineering role and you're an infantry guy like me, okay, what skills do I need to? either build up in order to reach that goal. And what do I currently have? Do I already have the storytelling? Do I already have the communication, the writing and all that stuff? Second piece is basically personal brand. is people being able to be aware of you, either internal within your company or external to the world, right? That's the one thing that you want to think about because that that carries over. It's one. I think it's one of the most valuable assets you can have. And it, it, I know for me, it helped me a lot on my career transitions. I would say another one is like industry knowledge, right? So for example, if it's not just one thing to have the skills, like I think that this is the earlier um, example I was giving to you, like you could be a software engineer and you know how to write code, but you might not have the domain knowledge in a specific industry. Like you might not know anything about climate or the defense industry or farming or agriculture, whatever it is, right? That specific domain knowledge is also really valuable because not everybody's going to know about it. So that's something you can bring in. I would say, uh, your network, right? Like the, another pillar is your network. People don't like the term networking. It's cool. <laughs> but it's really important. Like you have to at least keep up. You don't have to, you don't have to sell to people. Like it is some bad network. That's the thing. Like people have this bad networking thing. Like whereas like people just come up to me and just come up to me like, hey, can I get a job? And I was like, yeah, that's not good networking. I'm talking about like having good networks to figure out, okay, this person I know, they do this. Right? They are an awesome engineer or they do, they're an expert in the field of climate, right? And I can talk to them on these kind of questions and all kind of stuff. Or you can, and then for me, is I can tell them about the product and all that stuff. So having a network that's not just in your space, but also across, across industries has been super helpful because they, they open up their network too for you. And if you have an established good rapport with them, like I had, I have a good set of people that I can talk to and be like, hey, do you know somebody in this area? If I'm trying to look for a new job, I'll be telling them like, Everybody in this, just working in this area that you can either introduce me to, because if you have a good rapport with them and a good relationship, they will open doors for you. And that's, again, and that'll, on your job, on a job search or anything, or when you're trying to build a new business or whatever, is super important. And I would say, lastly, like, I would say, actually, not lastly, they, they call it financial resources, right? People don't think about this as part of their careers. And I know it's like investment financial is not really talked about as much, but it's really important to know where you are on your finances as part of your, as part of your career. Because if you know that you have a year's worth of runway, you can quit your job, really. If you're in a bad situation and you're like, no, this is not a team or not a good fit for me, you can do it. It's, or let's just say that if you have, you identify your next goal, and but you need additional training, if you have financial resources, you can bridge that gap <laughs> instead of like just learning by yourself or there's another it opens up opportunities for you yeah and I, I guess the last one would probably be more in just the professional experiences you have and that's one thing that you just build over time right just the professional experience on a specific role so but 
I don't know, all this, all those components lead up to what I would say will help you grow your career. Because if you think about it on this, these different, these different pillars, right? You can figure out which one you need to build on. Like you could be, again, like you could be an awesome developer. Like you could be the best of you. You could be the best developer out there. But if nobody knows you, you don't have a personal brand, it's trickier for you to get a job. If you don't have a network, then that means you just got to be applying to these roles. So I don't know. That, that's how I consider career capital. And you should, I think people should think about it that way so that anytime you come into the question of I'm not getting, I want to do X with my career. What do I currently have as resources or assets to help me get to that goal that I want for my career? And you look at all these things. Like, do I, who do I have in my network I can talk to? Do I have financial support? Do I have the skills already? What should I build up in order to do, in order to achieve this goal of mine? So. I really like that approach and the way that you describe each of those pillars because it's the holistic view is emphasizes that it's not just as simple as one thing. It's not just, oh, somebody and you get the job. It's all of these things and you have to be working on them all simultaneously. Those are all things you should be juggling, but which is, it sucks. That is the, the nature of it. But yeah. Yeah, if you want to, if you have some professional ambitions and want to get somewhere, it's, you got to be doing it. And yeah. I don't know, unless you just get really lucky. I, I definitely am not that lucky person though. Yeah, I think even, even on the conversation of luck, like investing in all these things will increase your surface area for luck, right? Your, your chances of getting a job if you invest in these or like on whatever it is, your, your, because I know some people don't just want a job. They actually want to be an entrepreneur. This increases your surface area of luck, in my opinion, because there's a lot more vectors for it. And to your point, like going back to what you were saying, even if you let's just say on the area of network, you're strong. Let's just say you have an awesome network and it can open doors to get you directly to a hiring manager. If you don't have the skills, but if you didn't invest in your skills and you go to that, to that interview and they, you can't show that, okay, I actually don't have those skills and those domain things, your chances of getting hired is, I wouldn't say zero, right? Because the person that opened the door for you, like, they're using their own capital, their personal capital or career capital to open a door for you. So they're vouching for you, right? Like, yeah, this person is awesome. And they do have that in their head. Okay. I know Niku and I, let's just say Brock basically vouched for Niku for this job. Like how much do I know Brock? Is he, I worked with Brock a lot, a long time and he's pretty awesome. And he says, this guy's pretty awesome. So I should invest in him. That's another thing that's, that could get you into the role, even if you have the, the skills or not. If you don't have all the skills and experiences, but again, like that's, I wouldn't say that's the, the common case. You still want to show those things out, those, your skills and your experiences out. So. Mm -hmm. Is there any one of those in particular that you think jumps out at you as like maybe a little bit more important than the rest? I know that they're all important and like the perfect concoction requires all the ingredients, but is there, is it maybe the skills thing? Like as, at the end of the day? you still have to be able to do the job. Is that maybe the most important one? Or what, what do you think about that? I think it's more of, it depends on where you are. I love my question. It depends because it does really depend. Um, Classic product manager here. It depends. Classic product manager. It depends. It's a yes or a no. I would say it depends on really where you're at. Like for me right now, like the most important piece is the personal brand that I'm prioritizing. Because again, if you try to, you could work on all of them all at once, but your progress is going to be a lot lower, right? You, you can't progress as much. So you, I usually program, I, I'll, I usually focus on one key area is like my priority 
like for this year, for example, right? This year, I wanted to focus on my personal brand, like the external personal brand. If you actually look at my LinkedIn, like I haven't really been posting even before this year. Like I, I post like once a month. And then February of this year, I was like, you know what? I'm going to change that up. And I'm focused on personal branding. And one, because I always tell my mentees, of, hey, you should post on LinkedIn. And I'm, I feel like a hypocrite not posting anything there too. And I'm like, <laughs> tell people go post. And I was like, you know what? I should do this too. I'm going to take my own advice. So I did that in February. But also, after I did that, I realized, man, this is such a powerful thing. Like just posting for that one week or for that one month, it resulted in me, it resulted about a couple of followers, which is fine. I actually have, I think I have the data for it. it I posted 23 posts, right? And then generated 38,000 38, impressions, 672 engagements, 315 profile views, 133 followers, 78 connections, right? That's great. But the more important KPI that I look at is that basically gave me six inbound opportunities with, with like just jobs alone, right? People reaching out, hey, I just saw you posting about this. Hey, you want, I have this thing that might be a fit for you or whatever, reaching out. And that's pretty good. And the other ones, I've actually gotten podcasts. <laughs> that's like, my, I think my fifth podcast interview now for the past like year. And I was like, okay, cool. Like, it does work. And it, I'm able to, the, the way I think about it is like, the problem that I'm on now is I, I have these um, experiences that I want to share out to people. And I realize that I can help one person at a time through one-on-one -on -one mentoring, or I could actually scale myself through content and make it easier for people to help themselves. That's why that, that, that little um, page for all the things also came up. I was like, okay, cool. How much can I, instead of helping just one person a month or two people a month, can I make this to like a hundred people or whatever? And that's the, that's the goal. So right now, I think it depends on where you are in your career or what situation you're in. I think earlier in your career, you have to invest in all of it. And it's, you, know, if you really want to be, if you really want to increase your chances of, of getting the job you want, the career you want, you have to invest in all of them, especially if you if currently don't have a job, right? Like you need to schedule out those things. Like your job is building your career capital. Okay, I'm going to schedule four hours today to build a skill, post two hours to engage in LinkedIn to build my network or my personal brand and all that, all that kind of stuff. So I think it just depends. If I was in a situation right now, okay, so here's the situation. Earlier this year as well, I was trying to figure out I want to transition to climate, a climate, climate tech company. I don't have any knowledge on that domain industry, right? But I know I have the, I don't have to work on my skills of product management anymore because I have that skill already. I don't have to work on engineering because I, have that skill already, I can come back to it, right? Like it's not something that I really need. If my target role is a product manager position on a climate tech company, I already have the product management skill. I just need a domain knowledge. So what I did was I invested in getting a, going to a bootcamp for climate tech, right? Just understanding the problem spaces. So I can actually get that domain knowledge and increase my industry knowledge on it. Those kind of stuff is like how you would, I guess to answer your question, it depends on what your next goal is on your career and where you are within your career. So, yeah. Anyway, oh, oh, again, it's a product manager answer of Japan, but that's the, that's the way I think about it. Because, yeah. A lot of the hardest problems in life come with and it depends clause at the end. So I won't, uh, <laughs> won't pin you down too hard about that. If you had to distill the most important thing that you think that vets could be learning from you in particular, what do you think that would be? I would say don't sell yourself short. 
especially like if you're if you were like me that was that was lower enlisted in E4, getting out, right? No degree and all that stuff. Don't sell yourself short. It's go figure out a path to get to what you want. Like, don't just feel like I'm going to default to becoming a cop or whatever. Or again, if that's, a, that's what you want to do, it's totally fine too. But don't just, don't box yourself in. <laughs> Make sure you look at other industries and or other careers. Right? Don't just think that you can, that you have to go to this path just because that's the only skills you have. There's still opportunities out there for you. So make sure you don't sell yourself short. If you want to go to that, if you want to be a doctor, just go figure out the path to be a doctor, right? Talk to, to a vet that's already a doc and figure out like how to get to that and really help yourself. You got to own your own transition, right? I know the, our, the military tries to help you out on it. And usually that last six months of the military, you're just like checked out and just trying to be like, yeah, I'm just trying to be done with this PT thing. Invest in your career, man. Like when you get out, like all those resources go away. Well, I shouldn't say go away, but it's a little bit harder to get. Make sure you make sure you actually utilize the time and don't just you know, do it just to. I'll figure it out when I go to unemployment and <laughs> and figure it out then. Then then you're unemployed and you're like trying to figure out. Like, oh, I should have probably thought about this like the past six months. So yeah, just don't sell yourself short and make sure that you take care of your transition because it's. When you're in the military, it's a big change, right? It's not just like you coming out of the military. That's the, the culture of it, especially in active duty, right? To you being it by yourself and having to manage your own things again. And it could be a culture shock to some. For others, it's not. I fortunately, I think I me transitioning to the Guard helped me out on that a little bit. But if you just go cold turkey and just get out of the military, then it could be a big shock. That's all good stuff. A, a lot of that resonates and I think probably will with a lot of the enlisted community. It's a, yeah. <laughs> it is a difficult jump, but there's certainly no lack of resources. And I appreciate your contribution to uh, the resources out there for vets. So what can myself or anybody listening do to be useful to you? If you're an, a, a listener, you transition out of military, be a mentor, man. Help out the next person coming back, coming out. I'm sure you could remember like the times when you were getting out and you wish somebody else was there for you to talk to. Just do that. I would say, yeah, just be open to folks to, uh, to talk to you. It's been helpful to me. And I would say also take care of, not really help me, but I would say for help, like make sure you also take care of your health as you go into this transition. It's can be tough, but you'll get through it. So, Awesome. Nico, I really appreciate it, man. I've enjoyed this conversation. I appreciate you coming on. Thank you. Appreciate it, Brock. 